Good afternoon, church. Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, praise for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, tend to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Thanks be to God. This is the kingdom. This doesn't sound like much fun. So, greetings, First Baptist. <laughs> It's good to be back with you. This was my home church for the first four years. I lived in Vancouver, and so I'm seeing some familiar faces, which is lovely. And it's also wonderful to be here on the Sunday that we can start together with a bit more freedom. However, given the text that was assigned to me, we may all question whether we want to be here, or whether this is one of those passages that we might like to skip over in our quest for some of the happier stories, like Jesus feasting and calling out those people for being not doing the right things. But here, Jesus speaks directly to his disciples. And that is whom I hope we all count ourselves among. And so his words are directed to us, and they are deeply uncomfortable. In fact, Jesus is calling us to be Christ-like to develop the character of our Father in heaven, our Father who cares for and provides for not just those who respond to him, which would be my inclination, but cares for all of humanity. When we love without demanding a return, then we truly show whose children we are. This passage comes after Luke's stark pairing of the simplified Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry now, with some elevated woes, woe to you who are rich, who are well-fed, well-spoken of. That passage would have brought comfort to the disciples. They would have largely numbered among the poor and the less well-spoken of. They would have enjoyed that part of the sermon, and then Jesus continues, and it gets less comfortable. Jesus begins the passage we're looking at today with a comment. But to you who are listening, 
Now, this may just signal a return of his attention to his audience, assuming that many of those named in the woes probably wouldn't be listening. But given Jesus' refrain and the larger biblical refrain about listening that calls for those who have ears to hear, I think there's reason, both thematically and textually, for understanding this as a call to pay attention for his disciples to be among the listeners, for us to be among the listeners, and then to show their listening by acting in accordance with this teaching. By the end of this sermon, in 647, Jesus will say, those who listen are those who put, hear my words and put them into practice. Are we listening? Because again, quite frankly, I'm not sure I want to be. Listening entails the doing of what we hear. And what we hear are three different ways, as it were, to consider what love is. In our world, love is a fuzzy term. Love is love, is taken to be self-defining, no further need for conversation. And if you question this, or if you probe further what is meant, then you probably don't love. But it also tends to be quite self-oriented in our culture's definitions. If you don't accept me exactly as I am, then you don't love me and you will no longer be part of my life. I see this as kind of a common mantra across my Facebook feed and other places in social media. Love is about me. Your love of me is judged by whether you make me feel good, make me feel accepted. And honestly, that's not all bad. Marriage would be a terrible place if my husband wasn't one who knew me and all my quirks and my weaknesses and my pettinesses and still loved me. That is a good thing. I'm grateful, but I don't really expect that unconditional unconditionality elsewhere. But I imagine that those who encountered Jesus encountered such a radical welcome that it boggled their minds. They encountered love. But Jesus didn't just welcome, he brought transformation, a holiness that spread from him to those around him. When we want love to stop before the transforming part, then we're just accepting a cheap knockoff version of the love of God. God's love is transformative. It helps us become mere images of the character of our God. And what does that look like? Here we're instructed in how to mirror God's love into the world via three different approaches that Jesus gives in his sermon. First, we're taught this passage to love those who oppose us, a shocking message that leads Jesus to need to give us kind of three illustrations, as it were, to help us imagine what he's even talking about. Then Jesus summarizes this, this into what has become known as the golden rule, the, you might say, human summary of how we're to love. And then thirdly, we're explicitly called to love as our Father loves, where Jesus highlights in particular the generous, merciful nature of God's love. Those who are listening are those who will seek to become like our Father in heaven having already experienced his generative, transformative love ourselves. 
So let's look at these different angles that Jesus gives us on love. First is Jesus' teaching then, and it's quite extreme. You have a four-part introductory statement. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Oof. We can just all go home now, right? <laughs> can we just stop there? This is a brilliant example, actually, of a Hebraic-style parallelism, where each of the lines after the first one further describe, explain, expand that initial command. Love your enemies. Love your enemies is fairly abstract. We could leave it kind of out there until Jesus further defines it. On the one hand, love is further defined. Do good, bless, pray for these enemies. It's a pragmatic list that takes away some of the ambiguity around the word love. I may love someone because theologically I know I'm supposed to, but it's a long cry from that kind of love to actively doing good for them, seeking God's blessings on them, praying for them in a way that's not just praying that God would change them. The first question we're faced with is whether we are actively seeking the good of our enemies, both physically and spiritually. That, not the warm fuzzies, is love. But the other halves of these clauses then define our enemies. They are people who hate you, who curse you, who mistreat you. Quite frankly, my best human impulse towards people like this would be to beg for God to change them, maybe even redeem them so they would stop acting like that. I would want God to fix them. And that's good. We do want God's redemption for these people. And it's only through God's transforming work that someone who has cursed us and mistreated us becomes our brother or sister in Christ. However, we're not promised this outcome. We can't engage in love as Jesus defines it if we're only looking to it as a tool, something to rescue us from our discomfort. Instead, we bless those who curse us, with no guarantee they'll ever change their position. We pray for those who mistreat us, yes, praying that they will cease, praying that they will encounter Christ. I imagine that's what the early Christians were doing as they encountered Paul, or Saul, <laughs> and then just met him after the Damascus Road. Our prayers were answered. This is amazing. Yes, we do pray for that, but we don't have the guarantee that that transformation will ever happen. They may never choose to repent. Now, I feel like it's important to note at this point that this is not a verse about enduring spousal, domestic, or other types of abuse. There are plenty of anti-abuse passages in scripture, and to take this one as some sort of trump card that people need to remain in abusive situations is actually, I think, to misapply it. We are to get the vulnerable ones to safety and protect those who are being hurt. But as Christians, we are not allowed to harbor hate, even for the abusive people. We may not let those who are being abused remain in abusive situations, but we also then find that we are called to pray for those abusive people and seek their good entailing forgiveness that may never come with reconciliation. 
But please don't hear anything I say or hear this text as some sort of excuse of the abuser text. Jesus is speaking to those who will listen. But if a person is abusing another person, then they have revealed that they are not listening. They are not practicing love. In fact, they reveal themselves as an an enemy. And what are we supposed to do with our enemies? We are to love them. Following his fourfold description of what it is to love our enemy then, with all the challenges therein, Jesus kindly gives us some illustrations to try and make sense of this. The first one can again sound abusive, and I don't think that's what Jesus is on about. These illustrations are describing love. Daryl Bach therefore describes these thus. Love involves not defending one's own rights, and accepting wrongs committed against one by being willing to forgive with the additional proviso that one is willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if that means being hurt yet again. Love is available, vulnerable, and subject to being taken advantage of. Revenge, however, is excluded, while doing good to the hostile is commanded. In the context of persecution, offering our cheek means continuing to minister at the risk of further persecution. Most agree that the turning the cheek is in context of a slap that is indicative of an insult. Such a striking is really an abuse of power, a misuse of personal authority. Nevertheless, Christians are not to fight back in kind. Disciples are not to fight back in kind. We remain vulnerable instead to the insult. Our model here, as Peter will repeatedly teach in his letter of 1 Peter, is Christ, who at his crucifixion received mockery, received abuse of authority, strikes across the face, and did not retaliate. We are not Christ, surprise. No, we're not. But Peter does not shy away from still using Christ at the crucifixion time as our model for how we are to live in a hostile society. The second example as well speaks to the risk of loss that we are likely to experience, whether through Christian ministry or simply by living generously as Christians. This obviously requires wisdom to know how we should act so that we're not just foolish and careless with what God has given us, but sometimes we use the the wisdom as an excuse not to be generous. We need to take Jesus seriously that we don't retaliate and seek revenge for the loss of material goods. And then this whole thing accelerates into the third example. Give to everyone who asks you And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Many of us find this verse complicated, at the least, to navigate in the modern world. And there are wildly different positions on whether to give to someone on the street or not. I'm not going to weigh in on that exactly. Except to say that I think Jesus might say that it is our responsibility to give and to give generously. Because we've been given to so generously by God... 
And it's not our responsibility to only give in controlled ways where we control that what we have given will be used according to our standards. Indeed, that seems to be the point of the second half. If we give or if something is taken from us, our perspective is to remember that nothing we have is actually ours. It is all gift from God. And so we are not to be possessive about it. My parents always had the philosophy when they loaned money that they did hope that it would be repaid when they set up the loan. But nevertheless, if it never was, it would not ruin their friendships or cause them to regret the loan. At some point, the debt would be forgiven because the people were of significance, of greater significance than any of their possessions. Generally, they were repaid. But there were some significant debts that they chose instead to cancel. Generosity is a fundamental, concrete expression of love. We give freely because we have so overwhelmingly experienced the generosity of God. And so we do not fear to give. Jesus then concludes this first sequence with what we've come to call the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I find myself often saying something similar to my four-year-old as he interacts with his little brother. If you don't want water dumped on your head, don't do it to Timothy. But every time it strikes me that I instinctively go to the negative. Don't do what you don't want done to you. But Jesus turns it around to the positive. Do to others what you would want done to you. Intriguingly, all the evidence we have of the world at Jesus' time is that the summary of the law was known, but it was known in the negative, much as I keep reinforcing to my son. The minimum picture, as it were, don't be harmful to others. But Jesus turns it around to the positive. Do the good to others that you would want for yourself, which is a significantly bigger challenge. (laughs) Refraining from harming people is one thing. Actively doing them good is another. Unfortunately, as Anthony noted in his prayer, the church has not always been known for this. And yet this is what we are called to. Actively doing the good. And most particularly in this context, to our enemies. That is what we're called to as Christ followers. The second half of the text then begins to fill in some of the rationale. If we love expecting a return, then we're doing what human nature would have us do anyway. Loving, being generous, being vulnerable, while expecting or even demanding the same in return means that the transformation into Christ-likeness that Jesus is teaching here has not yet been fulfilled in us. Three times Jesus emphasizes this point. What credit is that to you? Namely, to act as someone with good self-preservation skills would act is nothing to boast about. Even sinners, even our enemies do that. It seems these days, however, as I said before, to act this way has become a bit of a boast. Common refrain, again, that I keep saying is how we need to leave behind anyone who is in any way holding me back. Human nature expects a return 
not just a return, but at least an equal return, maybe even even better return. In our response to our human, or in response, however, to our human expectations, Jesus resummarizes yet again: love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back. That command to love our enemies comes back again. It's been fleshed out, and now with these extra subclauses, do good to them, lend without expectation of return. We love, we do good not because of and conditional upon return. We act this way because we trust God. And here the passage comes to its climax. Without this last piece, this is a lot of commands that we somehow think we're supposed to manage by pulling up our bootstraps and knuckling down and praying for our enemies or doing nice things. But Jesus instead wants us to pay attention to how we act because it reveals whose we are. If we act in worldly ways, then as Jesus says in Matthew, we've had our reward. The return on our investment happens here. But when we love and do good and lend without expectation of human reward, then that leaves space for God to reward us himself. Again, we don't get to do this demanding a reward from God. Hey, God, you owe me. I was nice to that person. That's not quite how it works. Rather, we act this way knowing that God does see. And what we may have lost here is not lost forever. As Jesus says in next week's passage, God, or whenever the next week is coming, um, God will return to us with a measure pressed down and running over. God is not stingy. And when we act generously, we gain far more than we may lose, even if it's not measurable on our normal standards. But even more than thinking of rewards, we discover that when we act this way, that we reveal whose we are. This is the crux of this passage. When we love without demanding return, we will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the grateful, or the ungrateful and the wicked. First Baptist, who is our father? Children, for good or ill, have a familial resemblance to their parents. For ill, we have followed Adam and Eve who took what looked good to them what sounded like it would benefit them primarily. When we demand a return on our love, on our generosity, we look like our father, Adam. But when we love abundantly, freely, without fear, without self-protection guiding us, then we start to become restored image bearers. Image bearers of our father in heaven. We were originally created to bear God's image in this world, reflecting his character in all we do and say. That image was marred, but Christ came and revealed again what the image of God would look like in his faithfulness and his selflessness, even as the Philippian hymn says, all the way to death on the cross. Our Father in heaven loves generously. 
He sustained the covenant with Israel long after they proved themselves repeatedly unfaithful. He showed his love to the world in the sending of Jesus. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ shows us how God loves even those who will continue to spit in his face and still reaches out to us in Christ, even knowing that some will call for his crucifixion. Who is our Father? Who are we looking like? We are children of our Father when we act like our Father, bearing his very character out into the world. And we are called to be children of our Father in this way. It's revealed in our actions, our choices to love, even where we don't get the credit, where we don't get the kudos, the rewards, even when it's costly. But Jesus would say it's good. It's good in a way that living like Adam can never fulfill because it marks the restoration of how we were created to be, who we were created to be, image bearers of our Father, children of our Father in heaven, who is himself so generous. And so Jesus concludes this redefinition of love with that final clause, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Again, we mirror our father's character out into the world. That is the calling we are invited into. This phrase echoes the phrase in Le- repeated throughout Leviticus and the Old Testament, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's people show God's character. And some of us somewhere have gained the impression that holiness is about what we don't do. But in truth, holiness is well-defined by mercy because throughout the Old Testament, throughout those initial commands setting up the people of God, consistently holiness is defined by an act of mercy to the marginalized, to those who cannot repay, to those who need to reap at the edge of your fields, and so on. Our holiness looks like lending generously to those who can't or won't repay. Ensuring that those who have but one cloak are well covered, even at our own cost. Holiness, mercy, says it's not about me anymore. And we are freed from our natural inclination to selfishness and self-protectiveness. Children of God who are listening, we learn to be like God. And so our mercy, our love, needs to look as generous and unconditional as our Father's. We want to love this way. Lord, help our lack of love. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.